Job chapter 8. As we get back into Job, Job is going to talk this time, and his friends, about when things don't make sense. Does life ever not make sense to you? Does it not work the way you thought it was going to work? You know, I, I, remember, uh, I remember being a teenager when I thought I knew everything and my parents didn't know anything and I thought exactly how life was going to work. But I remember actually as a college student going to college and I had my life all planned. I was going to get into accounting and finance. I was going to make a lot of money. I was going to retire before I was 50 years of age. I didn't make it. Um, I, I was going to have all the things that I wasn't able to have when I was a kid growing up. My Lord took care of our needs, but I grew up in a, in a lower middle class family. And so we had needs met, but some of my friends had some really neat stuff that I didn't have. So I wanted to have all those things. And God changed all that as I went through life. And there were times at first when it didn't make sense to me what God was doing. And I thought about that and then thought about Job and thought, wow, Job has it a lot worse off than I did. Because as we get to Job chapter 8, not only does life not make sense, not only is Job struggling with his picture of who he thought God was and who God has shown himself in Job's mind at least to be, but Job's friends have come with all kinds of great ideas to help him and they've been anything but help. And so as we've been going through this, just a quick recap to bring us up to speed, because this is an important thing to have as our foundation. You know, after Job comes out of his silence for seven days, he basically says, you know what? I just want to die. It's all over. Everything's gone. God's taken it all away. For whatever reason, I've lost God's favor, and I just want to be done with it. To which Eliphaz, Eliphaz is probably the oldest of his friends, How do we know that? Well, that's kind of the tradition of the time. If you've got three friends sitting there and somebody's going to share wisdom with a problem that somebody's having, it was the oldest one, the wisest one, the one with the most years behind him who would begin the discussion. You know, we know very little about his friends. You know, we know that Eliphaz was probably the oldest. Zophar, because he spoke last, was probably the youngest. And Bildad is probably the shortest. Bildad the Shuhite, okay? Had to give that one out. Think about it. Some of you will catch it in a minute. But as we get to this, we need to realize that Eliphaz basically brought the basis of what Job, he thought Job needed in his speech. Eliphaz said, you know what? You need to appreciate God's correction in your life and return to him. Because they looked at Job's situation and Eliphaz was thinking the same thing as Bildad, was thinking the same thing as Zophar. Good people just don't have these many problems in this quick succession of things. Good people don't have everything taken away. Good people don't lose their entire family. Good people don't end up on the ash heap outside of the city in mourning because God just blesses his people. God blesses the righteous and the blameless and God judges the wicked. And in Job's case, God judges the secretly wicked. Because if Eliphaz had known anything he could have put his finger on when he was talking to Job about why God was judging his life, he would have done it. He was searching. He was trying to get Job to kind of confess what's going on in his life. So here's Eliphaz, and basically his idea is, can a mortal man be right before God? You know who we are. We're sinners. Job, what did you do? Just confess it and get it right. And then as Job begins to try to justify himself, even in chapter 3, Eliphaz responds to Job, basically asking himself, can you justify yourself at the expense of God's righteousness? 
And the reason that that's so important is because we've all been at times somewhere close to where Job was. We look at what God has allowed to come into our lives. We look at the circumstances that are taking place. And if we believe God is in control and sovereign, and we do if we read the scriptures, if we believe that God's taking care of things the way they ought to be taken care of in our lives, we ask ourselves, how did this happen to me? We begin seeing life as if we are the center of the universe. Are you the center of the universe? Be careful. If you say yes, the person next to you is going to look and say, no, you're not. I am. Because we somehow get that idea that the universe revolves around us, that the sun rises in the morning to take care of us, that it sets at night to take care of us, that everything that happens is supposed to be good for us. And as Eliphaz is talking to Job, and Job's struggling with all these things, he's saying, you know what? I believe in the theology that Eliphaz has, but I'm having trouble with it. His major theological point in all of this, and the doctrinal point, is that God blesses the righteous. God judges the wicked. Job is sitting in judgment, so Job must be wicked. What's Job's problem? He's looking and said, but I'm blameless. I can't find anything. I've tried to confess anything that might be there. I just don't see why God is doing this to me. And so Job in all this is basically looking and saying, God, this isn't right. I almost said, God, you're not right, but he doesn't quite go that far, does he? What Job does is look at the circumstances in life and say, God, something's wrong with the way this is happening. But when Job believes that God is in control, and we'll find it again and again in this book, he does. When Job believes that God blesses the righteous and, and he judges the wicked, Job looks at his own life and said, something's wrong. So if something's wrong, who's wrong? And Job is again and again, and even in our passage today, Job's going to go back and say, oh, that I could make my legal case before the Lord, and he would realize I'm right. Well, if Job's right, who's wrong? If God's wrong, he's not God. And Job has lost perspective because he's looking at this whole thing saying, my universe has come crashing down. And even though he was blameless and feared God and eschewed evil, Job had an improper perspective on what God was obligated to do as a result. So we see this as Eliphaz comes, as Job struggles with these things. And then Job looks at his friends, and basically at the end of the chapter, at the end of his response to Eliphaz, he says, you know what? You guys aren't helping at all. You don't get it. And it brings us to Bildad's speech in chapter 8, and that's where we are today. Bildad's speech. Now, it's interesting if you put yourself again in the context of what's happening. Don't just read this and say, even as I studied it, the temptation was to say, okay, now I'm done with Eliphaz, now let's go to Bildad, and then in another week I've got to go to Zophar, and then I've got to get through all this stuff before everybody gets bored with all these conversations. But Bildad's been sitting there listening to this. Bildad is reacting to everything that's happened around him. And as Eliphaz is waxing eloquent for two chapters, trying to get Job to repent, what's going through Bildad's mind? Can you imagine? He's sitting there... Maybe closely under his breath, I don't know if they use this phrase quite yet, but amen, you know? Amen, that's right. I wish I'd have said it like that. That's exactly what Job's problem is. And so Eliphaz gets to the end of his speech, and Bildad's hope is that Job is going to look and say, you're right. I've got to confess. I've got to get back right with God. There's got to be something in my life that I've done wrong. And Job looks and says what? Oh, that God would just take me home. I've lost his favor for doing nothing wrong. I can't figure God out. 
but I know if I don't have his favor, it's not worth being here. And so Bildad speaks up, and as Bildad speaks up, a lot of commentators are a little more rough on Bildad than I think they need to be. They talk about the fact that Bildad is angry. I don't see anger in Bildad's words. They talk about the fact that Bildad is just totally upset with Job, and he's frustrated. Make no mind, don't, don't get that wrong. He's frustrated with Job. But as we look at Job's reaction, was Job's reaction to Eliphaz really that nasty? It wasn't. He thanked him for trying to help him, just told him he was not very good at it. And as we get to Bildad, we're going to see, again, Job's reaction is going to be pretty calm. We're going to see next week, when he gets to Zophar, he's no longer calm. He's had it with these guys. But up until now, you've got friends who aren't there just to beat Job up. They want in the worst way to see Job back on his feet. And they only see one path to that. And Job just won't follow the path. He's being stubborn, and so they're trying to get him on it, which is why we see the rebuke that we get from Bildad in chapter 8, beginning in verse 2, actually. It says, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be like a great wind? Now, he brings this out, again, it's poetry, but it's poetry as only a friend can do. You know, if you walk up to somebody you know and they say, you're nothing but a windbag, does that go over very well? I mean, that is basically, I mean, take the Hebrew poetry out, that's what Bildad just said to Job. Job, just stop, okay, we've heard enough. It's like just a great wind flowing through here. You need to listen to what we're saying. And then we get the crux of everything. And if you get nothing else from Bildad, this is what you need to get. Bildad looks at Job's argument based on what Eliphaz brought. And he asks him this question. And this is what he is basing everything on. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? When you look at God in the midst of your circumstances and you say, God, I don't like what you're doing in my life. You've got to ask yourself this question. Especially when you look at yourself and you say, God, I have been such a good Christian. I've done everything you want me to do. I'm at church on Sunday morning. It's, what time is it? It's 20 after 11 and I'm still awake. I'm paying attention. Some of you are taking notes. And we do all these things, which are all good things to do. But at the end of the day, if we're not careful, we think, because I did those wonderful things, God owes me something. Newsflash. God doesn't owe you anything. Whenever God does something wonderful in our life, it's called grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. When God doesn't come down on us harshly when we step out of line and when we sin, it's called mercy. But God doesn't owe us anything. We are here for him. He's not here for us. And that's a struggle that Job's going to have throughout this whole thing. Because Job wanted his life back or he wanted it done. Job didn't want to go through this at all. Job has no idea again why he's going through this. And so Bildad looks at him and says, how long? Isn't that a great question? Now, how many of you have tried to read through the middle chapters of Job? If you don't ask that question eventually, how long, then you're not paying attention to what's going on. And that's what's happening in life, right here live. Bildad's looking and saying, how long, Job? All you've got to do is repent and go to God and we can have this all over with. And Bildad's idea as we look through this is going to be and if you do that God's going to God's going to bless. And again, the biggest part of Bildad's problem that he takes from Eliphaz is they've taken what we call today the health, wealth and prosperity gospel and that's what they're basing their whole counsel to Job upon. If you are obedient, God'll do what? He'll bless. How do we spell bless? 
Some of us spell it B-L-E double dollar signs. God's going to financially take care of me if I'm, if I'm obedient. Did God promise anywhere in here to Job, as he's going through here, that God would replace all that he had? Now, again, you know the end. You know how it comes out. But as Job's sitting on the ash heap, what is he expecting? I am a hair's breadth away from dying. God, just take me. He's not expecting anything good to happen. Because he looks, he said, this isn't because I've been bad. This isn't because I've sinned. And so Bildad brings in this idea where he says, God never perverts. And the idea there is to twist, to bend, or to make crooked. Do people ever pervert the truth when they're talking to you? Say, wow, that's a, that, that's a rough word. Well, let's use the, what the word means. Do people ever twist the truth when they're talking to you? Ever bend the truth a little bit? You know, and we call it little white lies. Or, I didn't lie to them, I just didn't tell them the whole truth. As Bildad looks at Job, he says, does the Almighty do that? Does God give you truths in here to make you trust him, put your life and faith in his hands, and trick you to do it? God doesn't do that. You know, I'm sometimes concerned about the way that we can give out the gospel if we're not careful because we go to unsafe folks who don't know the Lord as Savior and we tell them, if you just turn to Christ, he will take care of all your problems. And unsafe people who are struggling with a bad marriage, financial issues, health issues, when we tell them God's going to do that for them, what are they thinking? Health, wealth, and prosperity if I turn to Christ. Now, if you turn to Christ and you accept him as your Savior and you believe that he died for your sins and you appropriate that to yourselves and you make him your Savior, he will take care of your biggest problem. You are alienated from God. God is angry with those that are under sin. And God will take care of that problem if you turn to Jesus Christ and you put your trust and faith in him alone. But it doesn't say in here then, and suddenly you won't have to go back to the doctor because you'll be feeling better. And there's money that's going to show up in your bank account tomorrow. And that marriage is falling apart will suddenly be just all peaches and cream and roses the next day. Now, God can do that. But God hasn't said he would necessarily do that. God's going to work according to his will in your life. And so here's Bildad bringing this, and he's saying, does God pervert justice? He does not. But what does the Almighty do? The Almighty does that which is just. It adheres to a strict standard, God's standard of righteousness and holiness. He does that which is right. It's the correct behavior is what it means. And the idea, and again, we don't know that they even had this verse yet, as Job was struggling through this, but Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. It speaks of God and said, God, he is the rock. Isn't it wonderful that God is the rock? When you think of the rock, it's solid. It's settled. It's not going to move on you. God is the rock. Not only that, his work is perfect. God never does the wrong thing, even by accident. You ever do the wrong thing by accident? I got under the car hood. I shouldn't do this. I got under the car hood yesterday because I wanted to change my spark plugs. It was time. But I'd heard these horror stories about the fact that if you're not careful, you'll break a plug off in the middle of, in the block, and then you're in trouble. So I'm carefully working through all of that, and I'm thinking, oh, if this happens like some of my other car repairs. You know, you, all of a sudden you hear snap, and you know this is not good, and it turns into a four-day repair, trying to figure out how to fix it. God never has an oh, snap day. It, we forget his ways are always perfect. So if something is in your life, and God is in control... Does he want it to be there? Is there a reason for it to be there? God doesn't look back and say, oh, I wasn't paying attention. You ever get in trouble for not paying attention? 
I didn't really get in trouble, but I embarrassed myself yesterday by not paying attention. I, I shared with a couple people because I just think I'm getting old now. But I, I, I knew we were leaving today, right after the service, and I knew there was a list of things that I had, had to get done before we left. So first thing in the morning, very proud of myself, I wrote down a list of these are the things that I have to get done. And as I'm writing down through all the list of the things that I have to get done, I looked in the calendar and I remembered that there was an anniversary coming up, happy anniversary to the Bradleys, it's today. And and there's a birthday coming up and it's Sandra's birthday today, so now they can all be upset with me, we won't sing to you though. But look at all that, and I got, and I wrote down on my to-do list, make sure you send out your texts for birthdays and anniversaries because I'm thinking, you know, it's going to get busy tomorrow and I want to make sure in the morning as I've got some time to think I'm doing that. So later in the, in the morning, I started working through that list and I got down to the list. Now, if I had only written down, make sure you take care of the birthday and the anniversary text for Sunday, I would have been fine. I didn't write that. I wrote, take care of the birthday and the anniversary text. So I did. I wish it a happy anniversary to the Bradleys a day early, a happy, anniversary, a happy birthday to Sandra a day early. And they all wrote back graciously and said, thank you, and didn't tell me you got the wrong day. I figured it out this morning. I was embarrassed because it was kind of an oops. I had good intentions. God doesn't do that. He doesn't say, oops, that's the wrong day for that. That's the wrong time for that. God doesn't need us to be gracious with him because his timing is always perfect. Now, we may not always get what we want, but his timing is always perfect. And that's the idea that, that Bildad is bringing. And this is the advice that he gives him based on that. We're going to go through this much quicker, but he says here in chapter um, 8, verse 4, If your children have sinned against him, he's delivered them into the hand of their transgression. He starts out by making a huge assumption, and what the assumption is that? Job, you lost all of your children because they sinned. Is it true? They're probably sinners. That's why Job was making all those sacrifices for them. But God took them. God allowed Satan to take them as a trial to Job. But Bildad doesn't know that. So he's waxing eloquent. And then he goes on and says this in his advice. Not only that, but if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, he will take care of things. If you are pure and upright, surely he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. So Bildad not only decides, you know, your children died because they had some kind of hidden sin that we don't know about. And God's been merciful to you. For whatever reason, your hidden sin wasn't quite as bad as your kids. And he's brought you to the point of death. And it's time for you now to say, thank you, God, for not taking my life. Beg God for mercy. Get it right. And then God will do what? He will restore your rightful habitation. What's Bildad telling him? If you will just confess and come to God, he will make you healthy, wealthy, wise, happy. Everything's going to be good. Is God promised that yet? No. So Bildad has this idea in his theology that this is the way it works. The reason this is so important is we need to be so careful what we do with the scriptures. We need to make sure that what we believe is in here is really in here. If I had a dollar for every time somebody said, somewhere in the Bible it says, and then they quote something that's more like colloquial wisdom than scripture, I'd be a rich man. But we live our lives that way. We're sure it's in here somewhere. I've had people come to my office and say, hey, pastor, where's this verse? And I'm like, it doesn't sound familiar to me. Now, I'm not all wise, and I don't remember every verse, but that doesn't sound like scripture. And when we looked into it, it wasn't. And what Bildad has got is a partial truth that he's applying in a very wrong way because he doesn't understand God 
the way that Job is supposed to understand God by the end of this book. And so we need to be careful how we do those things. So here he is giving him all of this advice. And it's interesting, he says, if you will seek God. Because in the midst of Job's last tirade about why he was innocent, he talked about God seeking him. And the word's the same. It's a word in Hebrew that means to earnestly seek and look for. And this is true. Bildad gets this right. If you would seek God earnestly, things will be better. Did Job seek God earnestly in the midst of all this? He asked God lots of whys, lots of questions, but he never really sought out God for who he was, for what he was doing. He never said, God, how can I react properly to what's come into my life? He kept asking, why have you done this to me? And I need time, I need court with you, so that I could tell you why you did this wrong. And again, you understand the emotion of it. You understand where it's coming from, but the, the second you say to God, you did this wrong, he's no longer God, if you're right. And Job's sure that he's right, and he's struggling with all this. And what Bildad tells him, you know, you said God's going to seek you. In chapter 7, verse 21, he says, Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth, and you will seek me, but I will not be. What's Job saying? God, you need to pay attention to me. You've missed it here. And I'm about to die, and I'm not sure you're paying attention. And once I'm gone, you're going to seek for me. And Bildad's like, no, God doesn't have to seek for you. He knows what's going on. You need to seek him. So they're going to do this interchange with wordplay constantly in these chapters that we're working through. But Bildad does this in order to try and get Job's reasoning back. God's not going to seek for him. Therefore, Job's view of God needs to be corrected. God already knows what's going on in his life. God has a purpose for it. Job needs to find out how to react, not why God's doing it. And again, we go through this whole subtle teaching again. It's all this, if I'm good, God's going to bless. And Job can't get this out of his mind, so we're going to get more of this in the reasoning in verses 8 through 19. Again, we're just going to pick out a few things here, but in verses 11 and 12, Bildad reminds Job that things don't just happen, they happen for a reason. You ever have something happen in your life and you say, you know, that was just by chance. Does anything in life happen by chance? Again, it goes to your philosophy of, and your understanding of who God is. If God is sovereign and in control and he is looking over his children, does anything happen by chance in your life? Can God promise that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose if things are going to happen by chance that he goes, whoops, wasn't expecting that to happen? God's in control of all these things. And we love to give praise and testimony that God's in control when good things are happening in our lives. But it's very rare that somebody comes in and says, I have a praise tonight. What? I'm feeling sick and the doctor doesn't know what it is. And you go, okay, where's the praise? The praise is God knows. He's brought that. He's got a reason. And you've got Job here looking at these things and Bildad says, things don't just happen for happenstance in verses 11, 12. And then he goes on in verses 13 through 19 and said, this is how God treats the wicked and those who forget him. He can't get Job to admit it, so he goes through a whole bunch of illustrations. And we won't go through them all today. Take time to read them. But here's, Job got, Bildad got the first part right. Nothing happens by chance. God's in control. He got the second part terribly wrong. He looked at Job and said, so if everything is under the control of God and you are where you are, then you've been wicked and you need to turn back to God and take care of it. 
And I, I say that again, I know I've said this over and over, but be careful judging people when you see what's happening in their lives. Isn't it easy to be where Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar end up? You look at somebody's life, you see them in a crisis situation, and what's one of the first thoughts that goes through your mind? I wonder what they did. God wouldn't have allowed that if they didn't. And they're wrong. They just don't understand what God's up to here because God's got a bigger purpose in all of it. Now, that's not to say that judgment can't happen in our lives because of sin. It does. But it is to say that every time we go through a difficult situation, it's not necessarily because we're being judged for our sin. And so you see here, here's the results. The results of his conversation. He says in verse 20, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked shall be no more. So Bildad looks at him and said, God won't forsake men of integrity. So Job, confess and get your integrity back. And the wrong ideas are going to continually keep coming back in some of these arguments. The wrong idea of what it means for God to stand up for him. Look what it says here. You know, if you would do what you're supposed to do, verses 20 through 22, God will not reject you. He'll stand up for you. The problem is, Bildad doesn't understand that God already did that for Job, didn't he? Remember chapter 1? Satan comes before him. Can there be any greater standing up for Job than God looking and saying, you want to see somebody righteous? Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him in all the earth. God's already given testimony to Job. Now, Job's not a perfect man. We're finding that out by his reaction. But when God looked at Job, God said, there's nobody like this man. He's upright. He fears me. He stays away from evil. And one of the four things that God said was characteristic of his life was the thing that his friends kept bringing back and attacking him for. And God said, that's not the problem. The problem is his friends didn't know that. Job knew that. He didn't know what happened that caused his problems, but he knew sin hadn't caused them because he knew he had been walking rightly and blamelessly before God. And the idea, blamelessly always blessed, wicked always punished, doesn't always work out here, does it? But we want it to. It goes back to our idea of fairness. If you are wicked and you sin, you ought to get punished. If you are good, you ought to be blessed. And kids believe that, don't they? You know, some of you have kids, you have multiple kids. Again, I've talked to you, but my kids used to drive me crazy because one of them would do something wrong. Nobody else would tell me, but they would wait for justice. And they thought I was omniscient. And when, they did, when I didn't punish the, the right kid or I didn't punish anybody or I didn't know that they'd done anything wrong, they'd get frustrated with me. I, my oldest son, he's in his 30s now. He'll talk to me about it at a time. You know, you remember when? I said, yeah, so-and-so did that. Well, did I know that? No, but we were really mad because you punished me instead. Well, did you tell me? Well, no, I couldn't tell on him, but you should have got it right. And Job's looking and God should, well, God always does get it right. But does he always get it right in our timetable? You remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16? When Jesus Christ is telling that story, and I believe this is a real story, this is not a parable that he's telling. He talks about Lazarus and the rich man. He said, the rich man in this life had all what? Good things. Lazarus, who was a righteous man, had what in this life? Bad things. He was laying on the roadside. He had sores. The dogs came and licked his sores. He had all these issues. And then we see in Luke chapter 16, verse 25, both men died. And the rich man was in Hades, in torment. 
And he looks across to paradise and he sees Lazarus, who's finally at peace, who's doing well. And as he looks at this, Jesus reminds the folks around that God's justice is there. The rich man was paying for his wickedness. Lazarus was being blessed for his righteousness. But it didn't happen in this life. And that throws us for a loop all the time because we see things in such a temporal perspective. We want it now because whether we admit it or not, we do kind of think life revolves around us sometimes. And if I do something nice, God bless me. Don't put it on my account. Bless me now. And we get frustrated when we don't see it. And that's Job's friends and their thoughts as they go through all of these things. But the bottom line is, after a whole chapter of Bill Dad trying to get Job on the path he thinks he needs to be for blessing, he doesn't help Job at all. Job, Job's friends let him down at the time that he needed them the most because their doctrine of how life works was wrong. And they tried to superimpose it on him. And so we get Job's response, and we're just going to briefly look at Job's response here. There's two chapters of it. I'm going to boil it down for the most part and bring it to you. But Job's response is very interesting here. And this is why I say I don't think that Eliphaz and Bildad were trying to beat Job over the head and just beat him up while he was already down. I think they're trying to help him because I think Job understands it. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so. What's he responding to? Not that he's a sinner. Not that he's been wicked and not taking care of it. He's like, truly, I know that God blesses the righteous and God judges the wicked. That's true. He said, but how can a man be right before God? He's looking at Bildad and said, who's right before God when you think about it that way? Because we're all sinners. We don't like to look at ourselves as sinners necessarily. And to be honest, we like to look at ourselves as being pretty good, don't we? When was the last time you tried to bring the gospel to somebody, tell them they needed a savior, and say, well, I'm a pretty good person. And they can list the good things they do. Now, they usually don't list the other side of the coin. You know, they don't list the bad things they do, but they'll tell you why they're a pretty good person. And Job looks and he said, no, I don't believe that, but if what you're telling me is true, why isn't everybody sitting on the heap of the ashes? Because we're all sinners. I'm having trouble putting your theology into day-to-day life. And then what Job wants to do in verses 3 and 4, says, if one wished to contend with him, with God, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. What does Job want to do? God, I want to tell you my story so you'll tell me I'm right and get this over with, vindicate me, and we can get things back on track. And Job's like, but the problem is, who wins an argument with God? I thought about telling a wife joke there, but I'm not going to do it. Who wins an argument with God? And you look, and Job says, you know, I want to argue with him. I want to give him my side, but is it going to do any good? He's wise in heart and mighty in strength. Job has an elevated view of God, even in the midst of all this. He said, God's wise. I'm not wise enough to argue with God. God's mighty. I'm not strong enough to make God do what I want to do. And then he said, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? In all of this, Job is trying desperately not to harden his heart against God. And that's why you see him coming to the same conclusion over and over again. If this is the way it has to be, God, just take me. Get this all over with. I can't figure it out. And so he's looking at this. He's responding to his friends. And he said, you know, nobody gets anywhere by taking on God. We could all learn from that lesson at times, couldn't we? You know, and sometimes we take on God, we get angry and we get bitter, we get depressed, we get discouraged. 
Sometimes we take on God in our prayer life. God, this is what I want you to do, and we tell God how to run life for me. And then at the end of it, we wait, mostly less than 24 hours, because God knows now he can take care of it, and he can. And if God doesn't do what we wanted him to do, what's the reaction? Often, God doesn't hear my prayers. Does God hear your prayers? It's like when you have, again, kids and grandkids. They're going to ask for things at times that you know isn't good for them. And so you tell them what? No, unless you're the grandfather, and then you give your granddaughter candy and stuff just before dinner and hope that her mom doesn't see you. But God doesn't treat us like he gives us what we need. He gives us what's supposed to be working in our lives. And as he's looking at all this, Job's trying to figure it all out because it just doesn't make sense. But he does affirm some things about God. And again, to save time, read this later. But chapter 9, verses 5 through 9, he talks about the fact that God is sovereign and all-powerful. As Job's looking at this situation, he's saying God knows what's going on. He's in control and he can do whatever he wants. He also, verses 10 through 11, said God is unsearchable. We don't always get what God's doing. So Job's kind of learning as he goes along here, but he's got some other problems. Verses 12 through 20, he talks about the fact that God's invincible. And he goes to that because he's saying, God, I want you to change things, and I know I'm right, and you won't do it, and I'm really frustrated with you. You ever been there? If you're not, you'll be there soon. You'll be there sometime. God, I want you to do this, and I'm really frustrated because I think this is a great idea. And we forget that he's sovereign and in control and all wise. And Job goes on later on in this chapter, verses 21 through 24. God, he he, he takes that idea of God, I know you can, and I know you haven't. And this is where he gets all messed up. He says in verses 21 through 24, well, God's just unpredictable then. You just don't know what he's going to do. Even when you live for him, you end up on the ash heap. That's Job's conclusion with this. And he looks further, and he says in verses 25 through 31, not only is God unpredictable, but he's determined when he makes up his mind. Is that true? God's always going to do what God wants to do, his will. And Job looks, he says, he's determined, but Job's frustrated with it because Job's saying he's determined, and here I sit in the ash heap still. Why isn't God determined to bless me instead of judge me? And he goes on and he says at the end of this passage, and the biggest problem for Job right now in verses 32 through 35, God's unapproachable. I want my time in court with God, and I can't get it. Not that God doesn't hear me, but God won't let me approach with my case. A case he knows he's going to lose. You remember the first part of the chapter? But he still wants his day in court. He wants to bring this to God and say, God, you need to change this. You need to do something. And so... Part of his response and the end of his response in chapter 10 is, so I loathe life. Why is that in the book of Job? Why is God showing us this man struggling with what God is doing in his life? And his conclusion in chapter 10 and verse 1 is, I loathe life. I'll give free utterance to my complaint. I'll speak in the bitterness of my soul. Does Job know where he's ended up? He does. If Job went in to see the psychologist, what would he get for a diagnosis on this? Job, you're depressed. We'll give you some medication to fix it. Would medication to fix Job? Job's problem is his relationship with God. And until that's fixed, he could take whatever he wants, but it's not going to help him. And Job's looking and saying, I loathe life because I don't like the way God's treating me. Why? 
because I deserve better. And what Job needs to remember, as he remembered in chapters 1 and 2, that God gives and God takes away, and I'm not my own, and I need to glorify God with my life. And Job needs to get back there because as he sits on the ash heap, he's decided, I don't think I like God's plan anymore. You ever been there? It's exciting following God when things are all going our way and God's answering our prayers the way we thought he should answer our prayers. But when Job ends up on the ash heap, he's like, I loathe my life. Be careful when you get there. When you get there, you need to take a step back and say, what is wrong with my perspective of God? That was Job's biggest problem. And God's going to spend a whole chapter or two at the end of this book fixing Job's perspective in a very, 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 very harsh way as we look at it from our perspective. But he's going to bring Job back to seeing God for who he is. But in the meantime, Job says, you know what? I loathe my life, and I'm going to complain. Why? I'm bitter, so that gives me what? The right to complain. If you're bitter, if you're angry with God, if you're complaining, you've lost your perspective of who God is. That's where Job is. He kind of knows his theology is good, but putting it into practice, he's having a lot of trouble with it. And Job complains. He complains about his maker in chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. He complains that he's God's creation, but why did God even create him to do this to him? He goes on further in verses 13 through 17. He's like, whether I'm innocent or guilty, you're going to afflict me, so what's the difference? What do I do with this? How do I, do, how do I deal with this? And then Job arrives at the height or the depths, probably better word, of his depression in verses 18 and 19. Why then did God make me in the first place? What's the answer to that? God created Job to glorify him in whatever circumstance he put him in. And Job kind of knows that. But he's forgotten it on the ash heap. Because life's become difficult. And sometimes you're going to have more opportunity to glorify God in the difficulties of life than when life's going your way. Because when life's going your way, everybody understands that. Did the devil understand that? Job serves you because you take care of him. But if I can only make his life miserable, he'll curse you. When people see you struggling through life and glorifying God and giving him the praise and going through it, waiting for his hand to work in whatever way he's pleased to do, you glorify him in a way that the world does not understand. Because they don't live that way. And they don't expect you to live that way. And when you do live that way, they think you've lost your mind because they don't understand that relationship with God. And that's where Job is. And Job's last request in chapter 10, verses 20 through 22, is God, just let me die in peace. Just let me go. Let me be in peace for a few days and let me go. And he, all of this happens because Job is concentrating on the why instead of the how. And I bring this to a close by saying, hey, don't concentrate on the why. That is so natural for our human nature, isn't it? God, why are you doing this? And until you answer me, I'm stuck here. Instead, we need to answer, ask the question, if God is sovereign, if God loves me, and if God has brought this into my life for a purpose, how am I supposed to act, react, and navigate through this that you might receive the glory? A couple concluding thoughts. Number one, be careful when you judge the experiences of others based on your interpretation of the truth. Eliphaz blew it. He had good theology, but he blew it when he talked to Job. Bildad blew it. He had to hear both sides of the argument, and he still didn't get it right. Zophar's going to be even worse. You know, you let those young guys talk, and now you're really in trouble. But he's going to be worse next week when we look at it. But be careful how you apply the truth, because you don't have all the facts at times. Number two, don't allow your desire for the why to lead you into discouragement and depression. 
Most Christians that get discouraged and depressed is because they're asking why about something and God hasn't told them. You know the amazing thing, and I've told you that before, but you know the amazing thing about this book? You'd think at the end of the time when God sets Job straight and tells him who he is, Job would know why. God never tells him about the conversation in heaven. God never tells him that the devil came, and you know what I said? There's nobody like you in all the earth. He never tells him that. But he restores him, and he brings him back to where he needs to be. And then find hope and not despair in the truths of God. When you're discouraged, it's easy to look at that book and say, now nah, what do I do? It's just, it's, and that's where Job got. It's over for me. It wasn't over for Job. But Job forgot how sovereign and almighty his God was. And then finally, remember that your life is his and that you're not your own. You will fall into the tra- trap of the wise when life becomes yours. Life is short. It is. If I don't do it now, I may never do it. You may not. But God's got a plan. God's got a plan for you. He's got a plan for me. Am I willing to say, God, whatever your plan is, lead me and guide me because I want you to be glorified? It may not be my desire. It may not be where I want to be. I'm not retired, haven't been retired for the last 10 years, thought that's where I'd be. Wanted the latest and greatest and newest cars. I don't have one. Wanted a big, expensive home out in the country with nobody within 20 miles. Don't have it. But I have God's will for me. And that's the place that we want to be. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'll help us to consider in the midst of all of these conversations that are being had with Job and his friends, the truths that are there. God, may we see past the conversations to the God who's behind what's happening here. And Lord, help us to learn from the mistakes that were made. Mistakes by Job's friends, mistakes by Job, losing sight of who you are and what you're doing. God, bring us back to the truths that you are the rock, that your way is perfect, and Lord, that you just don't make mistakes. Help us to be willing to go through and do whatever is in our lives, not so that we're necessarily happy or satisfied, but that you may be glorified in our lives and in the eyes of those around us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.